Welcome back to the Policy Biz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode of the show, I chat with Julia Silge. Julia works at R Studio. So if you are familiar with the R programming language, I'm sure you know Julia. I'm sure you know of her work. She was one of the earlier developers of the Tidy Models package, and she's working on a whole bunch of other things right now. And she has two books that have come out over the last year or so, one on Tidy Models, one on text analysis. As I mentioned in the first episode of this season, text is going to be a theme that you're going to hear more and more about over the course of the season. So Julie and I talked a little bit, actually not a little bit, a lot of bit, about visualizing qualitative data and the challenges that come with that. So you'll want to hear about that. You'll also want to hear about the new package Vetiver that Julie and her team have been working on about machine learning and sort of putting those models out into the world, actually uh, getting them to work uh, in real scenarios, in real situations. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy this week's episode of the show. And here's my conversation with Julia. Hey, Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to chat with you. We've been emailing for a while. I'm super excited. You have all sorts of stuff going on. Like in general, like I'm sure in addition to your regular busy schedule, you also have like two books out like now, which is pretty incredible. I don't know how you do two books and work and <laughs> lifestyle all at the same time. Um, so... I thought maybe you could tell folks a little bit about yourself, and then we talk a little bit about each of these new books, but then we'll spend a bulk of our time talking about this new work that you're doing, and I'm not going to mention it now. Okay. Save it for a little bit. Get people to (laughs) like, keep that play button going. What what are they going to talk about? What could it be? What are they going to be talking about? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'm really happy to be here. My name is Julia. Um, So my title now is... um, uh, software engineer. Um, I'm a software engineer at our studio. When I introduce myself, I often say I'm like data scientist and software engineer, you right. know, because people, um, you know, these, there's certain different kinds of tasks and kinds of skills that I often think about and talk about and write about kind of has that overlap there. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I've been, so I've been at our studio for coming up on three years, two and a half mm-hmm. to three years. Okay. Um, uh, I've been there for about for about that long, and it's been yeah. no shock, right? Like it's been a really amazing experience yeah. working working at our studio. I it was is interesting because it is the first time that my you know my title has been software engineer, and that the focus of let's say all of my time or most of my time is on tool building. Mm-hmm. I think I'm someone who's um, always been very interested in like people's really practical workflows, like how do they do things? And I've, I've been involved in tool building either open source or internally, you know, at places I worked for a while, but it is pretty interesting to now be kind of focused on that full time and less, less as a daily sort of practitioner, I guess, of the kind of um, using the kind of tools that now I focus on building. Yeah. And I would guess, I mean, even though you've done open source stuff in the past, I would guess R is kind of different in the fact that like there's so much of a community where there's so much openness around it. Like the one thing you build has like 40 other things that add on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, um, I actually... Uh, was not involved in the open source community before R. Oh, okay. I, yeah. So my, so my, you know, my academic background is physics and astronomy, and my 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 computational background at that point was just, was all C. You know, just like oh, plain, okay. old, yeah. plain old C. <laughs> and um, I, you know, partly for data analysis pipelines coming out mm-hmm. of a telescope, and partly for um, 
what we now call like embedded kind of work, like to write software to run on the camera uh, mm-hmm. on the um on the telescope to write, you know, oh, the software that does the drivers, you know, like moves the little optical components right. around and that kind yeah. of thing. So the, the, now that's called like embedded programming, gotcha. I guess. Yeah. Um, but so I, you know, I think at the time there, there must have been open source communities, but I perceived them as, scary and not for me you <laughs> <Right>. know <laughs> what like i perceive her world sort of thing yeah well like it's like the linux kernel people yeah, like that's yeah. that's what i perceived open yeah. source as because i you know i mean i think there's some reality to that both mm-hmm. because of the time that it was then and um and what those you know what those particular kind of communities are like so right. i um didn't see that as a place where i thought would be a good fit for me and I didn't try and I wasn't interested, you know, yeah. like I wasn't, I, that wasn't something that I did before in my sort of pre pre data science life. And, yeah. and then kind of, you know, later in life when I've kind of made this like career change yeah. and, you know, first I started learning Python and then I found out about R and started learning it a bit too. And, and seeing what the open source communities are like, yeah. especially R, I would say, especially R and being like, whoa, right. this this is amazing. You know, yeah. I really did when I was thinking about um, this transition and kind of like thinking, I think this would be a good fit for the things that I really like to do. And okay, I'm going to learn these new, or the, I mean, not new, new to me, new to right, me right, at the time, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, programming languages that I had not dabbled in before. Um, I really kind of had this mental attitude of, okay, it's time to toughen up, time to right. gird my loins and go back in there, you know, <laughs> to, to like this kind of technical community. Yeah. But, but my experience of it has been just just right. the opposite, you know, just, just welcoming people excited about what you're doing, people interested in what kind of thing might you do also interested in, let's call it mentorship or interested mm-hmm. in like, Oh, you, I see you built a package. Let me offer you resources right. <laughs> for how right. you might be better at that. You yeah, know, like how yeah. you might get better at that. So right. yeah, my, so, so actually, no, I really do not have open source history besides, hmm. um, you know, besides art and data science right. technologies. And I do want to get to the other stuff, but your origin story is really interesting. So were you like, when you're getting into Python and getting into R, sort of learning the open source world and learning the code, is that what drew you to R Studio, Or was that kind of like, yeah, I now see this is a good, positive community. I want to be a part of it. But that's sort of like added bonus. And I want to go to R Studio because of XYZ. And do you mean go to our studio as in terms of like full time yeah, employment? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. because our studio has the IDE. I was like, man, I love this. Yeah, this right, is right. this is great. This is right. way better than just using Emacs like I used to do. <laughs> Coding in Pine. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, so, in terms of working on open source full time, yeah, uh, I it what you know honestly it wasn't really. I wouldn't say it was a goal I had or something mm-hmm. that um, I had on my radar as an option. Um, I was interested in data science as a practice, and mm-hmm. and I was interested in building tools that make you know made my literal life better, but mm-hmm. also could be reused by other people, and you know we can make things better together. Right. Um, and I. I I, you know, if you had asked me what do you envision doing, I would say, oh, well, I'll probably, you know, 
be a data scientist and, you know, contribute to open source on the side. And yeah. I, you know, like the employers that I had, you know, over those kind of first couple jobs in data science were definitely employers who, you know, knew the value of open source and encouraged, encouraged involvement in open mm-hmm. source software. So it, it wasn't a situation where I was like, well, I will get in big trouble if I, right, right. you know, uh, you know, do anything for an open source project on the clock. Yeah. It wasn't that kind of situation, gotcha. you know? Okay. Yeah. Um, but so I was, you know, I was working as a data scientist and kind of thinking about my next step and this, um, and, and our studio, po- you know, posted this job about mm-hmm. um, working on tidy models. So working on tidy okay. models. Uh, so, so what that really involves is like, not statistical methods, not like let's implement new methods, but rather mm-hmm. let's think about how do people go through the process of a model analysis? How can we build software to make the, you know a harmonious, less heterogeneous interface to many kinds of models? How can we build in statistical guardrails to mm-hmm. how people go about building machine learning models? And and I thought, oh, well, that is right up. That is right up my alley. Yeah. Like, I, I love working on that kind of thing. That's, that's a little bit about process and a little bit about um, practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, of course, like I am a mathy science person by, back, yeah. by background, yeah, yeah. but I am, I am much more motivated by tools that are a little bit more around process and practice than about mm-hmm. say let's invent a new statistical method that's going to get this tiny <laughs> bit better <laughs> than the one before like that's right. not super right. that's not super right. motivating to me so right. so um you know i applied to this job just like a any other person did i yeah. wasn't the only person who applied you know they interviewed so it was so my process of getting a job at our studio was pretty much like Getting a, getting a job, getting a job, you know, yeah, right, um, right. uh, it wasn't what, you know, I wasn't a, in a situation where they said, Julia, come, we want right. to hire you. You know, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that. Like I applied, I interviewed, right. <laughs> I was lucky enough, I feel like to get yeah. offered that job. Yeah. And so, um, I've been, you know, it's been really fantastic and I'm really yeah. excited. Um, I do, you know, I, I talk to people sometimes who I think, maybe have an exaggerated idea of what it is like to work on open source or mm-hmm. maybe an unrealistic or rose colored glasses kind of idea. Like what is it like to work on open source mm-hmm. full time as a job? Because I do think for some people you're like, that sounds like the dream, right? the dream, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, it is a job. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I've, I, it's a great job. Like, I yeah, enjoy yeah. it very much. I, it's a, it's, a, it's one that I um, feel very fortunate to have. But yeah. it, it is, it is at the end of the day, um, a, job, a job. You know? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting here. You talk about the workflow because it seems like all the stuff that we're going to talk about is definitely in that vein. And I would guess that the workflow around data and tech and coding has changed dramatically. I mean, even in the three years or so that you've been at our studio, the way people are working with data has changed. Um, Okay. Yeah. So you've got two books coming out. You've got one book on tidy models, which you've already talked about. Now I have Max, your co-author, Max Kuhn, is going to come on the show uh, later this season. So we don't need to dive into all that. He can do the sales job on tidy models. Um, You've also got this book on text analysis, which is really exciting. So I want to make sure that we get to your current work. So I'm going to ask you just one question on 
the text analysis book and we'll right. read the other stuff on time. So I want to ask you, do you think data analysis, data visualization is harder with qualitative data or with quantitative data? That's a great question. I think that um, an important thing to realize about those, that sort of comparison, that mm -hmm. sort of, um, hey, how do we think about rectangular data versus unstructured data mm -hmm. is to realize that um, when it comes to computers, no matter what you're doing, you know, Python R, you know, what, whatever, whatever you're doing, um, for you to be able to summarize, visualize, or eventually train a machine learning model, you have to get that unstructured data, that qualitative data mm -hmm. um, into some kind of structure, structure. into some yeah. kind of shape. Like, mm -hmm. I like to kind of think of that way. Like, you have to, like, if you think about your, say, raw text data or other kinds of qualitative data as, I don't want to say shapeless, but like very unstructured yeah. in their yeah. shape. If you're going to do some kind of analysis, any kind of analysis. You you have to transform that text, that other or other kind of qualitative data into an appropriate data structure for whatever it is you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So I think I've been thinking about this actually because so the the first book that I wrote with um, Dave with David Robinson, mm -hmm. um, uh, text mining with R is the name of it, and it's a book that's really about um, EDA like exploratory data analysis, but for text. Mm -hmm. And it, it adopts a, an opinionated, um, kind of an opinionated take that uh, having your text data, transforming it into a tidy data format where, say, you have one observation per row, mm -hmm. um, that sets you up for success in terms of, in terms of the task of exploratory data analysis, whether that's um, uh, you know, I need to summarize, I need to visualize. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that, that tidy data structure is one that, uh, sets you up for being able to flexibly, um, make a, you know, take a lot of different kinds of tasks or approaches. Right. And it's good for the same reason that just any kind of tidy data is good. Mm -hmm. Right. When it comes to training a machine learning model, we got to transform, right? But yeah. often the, the best end shape or data structure for, you know, that we're going to head to is not, say, something that looks like a table, like a table in a database or like a tidy data frame, but rather that something that looks like um, a matrix, something you can do math on. Because, mm -hmm. you know, basically any of the machine learning algorithms um, are going to are going to use, you know, some kind of big matrix and do some matrix math or some other, you know, right. kind of kind of approach there. And so there again, we have this transformation that has mm -hmm. to happen, but it's a bit of a different one uh, yeah. where we, we need to end up in a different kind of um, uh, mm. situation. And much like, you know, say the transformation from raw kind of unstructured text to a tidy data, that transformation to a, you know, something that you might think of as like a document term matrix or, or just some kind of matrix representation of it. Yeah. The decisions that you make to get from one to the other really impact what you can learn, what like in, in the literal statistical learning sense and, or yeah. the more conceptual, like what am I trying to do here with this, um, with this data that, is really the focus of the book that I wrote. Um, it was published 
last year. Yes. With um, Emil, uh, Emil Wiefeld. And so that's called um, supervised machine learning for text analysis in our bit of a mouthful there. And, (laughs) and that like the fully, the first third of the book is Mm -hmm. about feature engineering for text, which is just exactly that process of, I have unstructured natural language and I need to transform it into a representation Mm -hmm. that a machine learning algorithm can, you know, can do math on. Right, right. I had a call yesterday with people who, you know, with a team that's, you know, they have qualitative data and they were sort of asking me for help with some of the pieces. It's like, well, I, you know, if you, if you wanted me to, you know, help you with your bar chart or a map and you sent me a table, you know, of data, I could sort of play around with it. But with qualitative data, I felt like I really need a content expert to go through and tell me what the themes are. Right. And, um, and I guess if you, yeah, if you can structure that data and pull out the themes using machine learning, you can then sort of share that information with lots of people to say, what's the best way to then represent it? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question that I've definitely run into in different um, situations or jobs. That idea of I have unstructured data and what do I do with it? And yeah. I think I would say the two big sort of answers to what can I do with this unstructured data? Like the first big answer I think is yes, content experts, experts who domain experts who know something about this. I'm going to have them label this. I'm going to have them um, create themes, Um, you know, and I've worked with really fantastic qualitative researchers Mm -hmm. who have this skill of say, um, I'm going to spend, you know, time doing either, top down or bottom up kind of like categorization of what these things are about. And then once we have those um, annotations or labels or whatever you want to, you know, put call that, then we can use that to, you know, maybe you can use that as training data. Maybe you Mm -hmm. can use that in and of itself to be able to learn something. So that's the first sort of answer to what am I going to do with unstructured data? I think yeah. the second answer uses quantitative approaches. So mm-hmm. uses um, uh, something like unsupervised machine learning approach, like um, topic modeling, or uses some kind of you know supervised machine learning approach um, mm-hmm. to be able to predict some kind of label. And then you, you, know, you use these methods of text analysis, like um, tokenization, like, like identifying important words, like you, you basically transform the data, like what I was talking about before, kind of to some, probably some sort of matrix, you know, um, representation, and then use some kind of, um, statistical method to be able to learn from it. And I think in my experience, those two options, like what is right to choose depends a lot on how much data you have, right? Like if you have, let's say you have less than a thousand observations, yeah. then then it's like, yeah, you probably are going to need to read those, you know, yeah. like you're going to, someone's going to need to read those and, and, uh, yeah. you know, do some principled qualitative analysis on it. And, you know, you get above about a thousand and then you can start using some of these quantitative yeah. approaches. The, right. the thing about text is, um, you know, you say you have a thousand observations, but mm-hmm. The thing you're observing usually is some kind of token, like whether that's a single word or something else in there. And depending on the vocabulary that people use, and mm-hmm. that can actually mean you don't have a thousand observations. You have, you have, you know, maybe many more observations yeah. than that. 
Like you haven't observed each thing very many times. Right. It's like the way natural language works, right? Like some words are used. A, there's a few words that are used a lot. And right. then, and then it's a power law in terms of like there, most of the words are used a very few times. And so you actually haven't observed those words very many times. So depending, it depends on the specifics of the vocabulary that people right. use right. in how it is used, but truly natural language where people just kind of use all the vocabulary that they have access to, um, ends up in a kind of interesting situation for, let's just call it the counts, like the counts of yeah, how many times you, yeah. you observe yeah. different things. Yeah. I'm guessing tokenization is one of those words that's at the tail of that, uh, Tell yes. that power law, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I've already said it like three times. Right, so, exactly. But yeah. it will be the only time in all the transcripts of this show that it'll occur. So, you know, right, it's, it's right. right. Um, okay, right. so all of this, I think, segues very nicely into your current work, which is on the vetiver package. And this is not an area that I am familiar with. So I am just going to ask you to explain it to me because I'm guessing people who are listening to this are also not as familiar with it. But it sounds like it's got the combination of all the things you've talked about. If I'm if I'm understanding, it's got the workflow piece, uh, it's got the open source piece, obviously, and it's got the text and the machine learning. And it it seems by my reading of it, it's working all of those into this like closing the circle on the workflow. Yeah, yeah, I like thinking about it that way. I so this is something that um, I've been talking about since I was hired, actually, mm, at our okay. studio. It's one of the things that we talked about when I was hired was, okay, you're going to come, you're going to work on tidy models packages. But one of the areas that we know, for example, we, you know, we would get, we get questions about, you know, when we would do trainings on tidy models, it's like, mm -hmm. okay, well, once I have my trained model, what do I do with it? Like if right. I have some kind of predictive model or, um, you know, some kind of like machine learning model. What is it that I do when I'm done? Um, and there is this uh, narrative that, you know, R is not good for production. R is not good for um, real work or right, work that yeah. you need to scale, something yeah. that you need to scale. But it, it turns out actually that some of those t same tasks are are difficult in Python as well. Like mm -hmm. um, the the difference is maybe not as big as um, you know some people expect or would like to see. That the process of taking a Python model and putting it into production is actually also fairly no, difficult. Yeah. Right. Actually, also there's a lot yeah. of questions around what do you do? What are good practices? Yeah. And um, so as I spent more time at our studio, it really, I, so I expressed interest, right. And like mm -hmm. working on these kinds of tools, because I think, and, there, and you're exactly right. That the big reason why it appeals to me is that I do love working on really applied yeah problems on really, um, uh, really practical kind of, um, sets of tools or mm -hmm. sets of uh, analyses that people have. Right. And this sort of, you know, you, you've trained a model, let's say you, you've used really good statistical practices to do a great job training a model that is, um, a reliable and robust and you can, you know, you understand its predictions, but that, that question of like, what do you do afterwards with that yeah. model is, um, is, is where vetiver sits. So vetiver okay. does not, um, 
is not about developing a model. Mm. Vetiver is about what you might call model ops or ML ops tasks. So these are tasks like versioning your model. Um, these are tasks like deploying your model. And uh, these are tasks like monitoring your model. So your gotcha. model is done being trained and and not all models are deployed right like some models yeah. are trained uh, in in the book with max we kind of outline like a an ontology of models where like models can be built for different purposes some models are built um to describe just to just as like to describe data. Some models are built um, for inferential purposes. Say you mm -hmm. want to look at, say, the coefficients of the model and you want to communicate something or explain or understand some situation based on the coefficients of the model. And then mm -hmm. another big reason why models are trained are um, to be predictive, to be predictive models. And that's typically where, like, it's not very useful to have a predictive model and not be able to deploy it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and put it into, quote, production. Yeah. And, you know, like, people, I think, also talk about, like, hear that and either feel scared or confused because they're like, what yeah. does production mean? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. What, is, yeah, what, what does, does it mean? mean? Right, yeah. What does it mean to put a model into production? But just, like, what does production mean in general? Mm -hmm. One way I like to think about production is that your, in this case, model um, is portable in the sense that you don't, say you trained it, say, on the computer sitting on your desk, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have that model on the computer on your desk. Mm -hmm. But um, to put it into production is to make it useful in a different computational environment, mm -hmm. like to make it useful in to other users than you. Right. So, so in kind of by that definition, um, one way you could think about or visualize putting a model into production is say like um, building a shiny app that allows people to like human beings to kind of like move sliders or change, you know, mm -hmm. change inputs and to see what does the model predict? Like mm -hmm. if I do this, what does the model predict and to get a prediction out? Right. So, and then if you, if you, you know, deploy that shiny app somewhere, like you put that shiny app somewhere, I would call that putting a model into production. Right. Most often when people put models in production, what they're doing is they're making their av model available not necessarily to a person to um, be able to, say, move a slider and see how the prediction changes, but yeah. probably to make the predictions of that model available to IT infrastructure. So say, you know, you have, say, a business selling widgets and you want to, <laughs> you know, you yeah. want to have some a model that like helps you decide, um, predict what, what is what? the most likely widget that, right. um, you know, this customer wants. Right. And so you, you don't necessarily want a person to go and look, but rather you want, uh, in a more automated way mm -hmm. for whatever system that's facing the customer to be able to say, Ooh, Hey, um, this is the one I think that is the best or like, right. like here's the highest probability um, category or whatever mm -hmm. that this person is, is interested in. And so usually when people say put a model into production, what they mean is they like take the model, package it up and make it available um, so that the systems that you have can interact with the model and get out what they need. And if you ever heard the term microservices, what that means is just like, 
like let's separate those things out so that each one of them is its own little computer basically you oh, know its I own see. little okay. its own little piece right? right so that you don't have them all together in one system but like gotcha. the system that you know uh get like shows the customer something is separate from the system that makes the prediction but they all can like they talk all, to they each all other talk, but they're yeah okay yeah right. and the and the way that most of these things talk to each other in in most situations is by restful apis so like if you've ever you know said like ooh, i'm gonna use say in r like the hitter package and mm-hmm. i'm gonna i'm gonna do a get request or a post request like you use http calls mm-hmm. to for one system to be able to talk to the other system so that's that's when when most people say put a model in production that's usually what they mean they okay. want they want to have the model somewhere um, so that other parts of your infrastructure can say make an http call and get back the predictions that the they predictions need. from the first part so and, and then on the version control so does Vet ever have a version control embedded within within it or or do you need to also be using like a GitHub type solution to also have that piece? So this is an interesting question. How do you version data? How do you version yeah. models? So let's talk about just models. Um, Git can be used to version models, but they sometimes get a little big um, yeah. because you don't, it's not like, text they're not plain text they're usually binary objects and if you update it like you retrain it with new data it's not like text where you're like ah let me i can diff it and i can see that this line has changed no the whole binary file has changed and so git um can be used for that kind of purpose but it's it gets big and it sometimes it's not very you know you don't you don't get like the reasons why you would typically use git um, cause of all the diffing, all the line by line, all that kind of thing. Like it doesn't really apply to a model. Mm-hmm. So there are some tools that use Git for versioning data and or models. Mm-hmm. One that I like is called DVC data version control, but that's actually not the approach that we took. So we took an approach that's a little bit more like, think about you have a way to f- store files somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then let's just put like a little bit of a layer on top of that so that you can version, so that you can version and like have access to all the versions you need in the past, mm-hmm. attach kind of some, mm, some metadata that's like appropriate metadata for a model and that, that you can kind of switch out backends in kind of a flexible way. Gotcha. So, so we use, it's, it's actually the same approach that the pins package takes. So mm-hmm. pins is a, there's an R and Python version of pins. And it's the metaphor here is like, you have a board, like, mm-hmm. like picture a bulletin board, and then you pin things to the board. And then right. it's like, oh, it's time for me to make a new version of that. You kind of like pin a new version on top of the old top version. Of, gotcha. Yeah. And so the, huh. where are you actually keeping it is quite flexible. Like you can, you can, sure. Um, pin, you can write a pin to a, um, like a cloud platforms blob storage, like S3 or Azure blob storage or something like that. Mm-hmm. You can use, if you're a, if you use like our studios pro products, you can use connect mm-hmm. as like the storage device. Like here's where we come and get these versioned um, storage pieces. You can use like, if you're in a situation where say you have a shared network drive or something like you can use that. And so it, it looks the same to the yeah. user, but you are deciding where is it that this goes. So yeah. it's a little bit of a um, bespoke versioning approach that mm-hmm. is meant to have flexible backends and give you 
just the right amount of um, abstraction around it, where mm-hmm. it's um, straightforward to get the right version. It's straightforward to share it with the right, you know, sets of users, yeah. um, that type of thing. So do you now get to, or do you, do you and your team try to work with our studio clients, I guess, to see how they're implementing it and what, like where the, you know, blockages are and, you know, where, where they need improvements? Yeah, yeah. That, and that's a super valuable um, piece of feedback for us. We work on open source you know, I am on the open source team, right? Right. We like me and my team work on open source software. Right. 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 But because it is so much about, um, deployment, which is is really about like, where does my data artifact and work? Like, where does it finally come into contact with the infrastructure that I'm working on? Like, so, so it really does, um, involve, you know, very, like we've, I've been saying very applied, very practical, like how are people really doing this? And yeah. So before, um, kind of very early in the process of all of this, like I spent some time doing, doing a round of user interviews. Like I had a little, like, um, you know, questionnaire I had, I had put together to try to understand what were people doing now? What Mm -hmm. was, working for them, what was not working for them, where did they see their, their, you know, pain points or like, where was collaboration not working? Yes, kind where of like was, falling apart. Yeah. 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 And though, though I, I so appreciate all the people who are willing to talk to me. So that was a mix of people who are our studio customers mm-hmm. and um, people who are from the community who were, you right. know, had been, you know, trying to say, put a model into production. Right. And I, I really appreciate um, those people's uh, time and expertise and perspectives because it did, it did inform, mm-hmm. um, you know, what we eventually decided to build, um, yeah. which, you know, is different than some of the other options that are out there in that it's really flexible what you bring, like what kind of model you bring is um, like where we kind of put the, I guess the hooks, like the, the, where do you kind of enter into this process? Like, like we built that to be very flexible. Hopefully we have the options for say the 80% case and then, then it's extensible and, um, customizable for say the, and I mean that in like a real substance. Right. 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 For for multiple teams doing multiple different things. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, sort of like having this piece and this piece and this piece, that's not just tools, right? That's people working in their own little pieces and to try to resolve that or fix that. It's like a good old industrial organization challenge that. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. for sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah. And so that was, that was all early. And then since we have had something to show people, we've mm-hmm. been doing, um, you know, we do pretty regular demos or, you know, getting feedback kind of sessions where we show people like say a demo and say, what questions do you have about it? What do you yeah. think would work about this? What, are you still looking for, you know, and not that we can do, we can be everything to everybody. Cause we, oh, right. you know, we, we can't, we can't, right. but like to understand what the most common, um, use cases are or yeah. difficulties. Right. Um, so one last question for you, are you making Vetiverse t-shirts? Cause <laughs> that's like the obvious 
extension that's of right. it. entering that's the right. metaverse, right? Yes. I mean. the, uh, yes. Yes. I actually, so, so it's, so it's a real word. It's a real okay. word, vetiver. It is an ingredient in, um, in perfumery. So if you're like, I'm into perfume and I'm into like fancy candles, okay. you know? And so if you like, if any of your listeners are like vetiver, I feel like I've seen that right. or heard that somewhere. It probably is from like a fancy candle or something okay. like that. Right. So it is a, it's a stabilizing ingredient in um, perfume um, it huh. does smell good on its own but like its main purpose that is used for is that like uh, you know if you take like more volatile kind of you know scents and fragrances vetiver right. will help stabilize them so uh. they don't just like you know go away and evaporate off right. and so the and so the metaphor here is right like vetiver helps you stabilize your your models here models, are like right, these yeah. are these like sort of more um volatile kind of components and vetiver stabilizes it so that you know you have you know the version you need right. it is reliably deployed in a way that you can you know get to the predictions and also you can monitor um, how it's doing over time Gotcha. So in doing research on this before deciding for sure on the name, yeah. um, it was it was kind of appealing that it was a bit of an unusual word, right? Yeah. There's not a ton out there. <laughs> but I think there is something out there called the Vetiverse. Because I think there's like a there's like a band or something with oh, the okay. same name. But it's it's a pretty uncommon um Yeah. Okay, word. but if I'm ever out and I see like a perfume store or a candle store named Vetiverse, I, I'm going to expect you to be in there just like <laughs> selling your like custom made candles and stuff. Yeah. That's right. With, That's our, right. with our studio stickers, like on the bottom of it with the price or something. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, Julia, thanks so much. This was really interesting. I mean, I mean, I just learned a lot. I'll just say that. Um, really fascinating stuff. Um, congrats on getting it out. And I'm excited to see how it starts to be picked up and find itself into the open source community and see, see what folks do with it. It'll be really interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, we're super excited about that too. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been great chatting. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks everyone for tuning into this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you'll check out all of Julia's work on her website at our studio and in the R uh, packaging language. Um, I put links to all of these packages that we talked about and her books in the show notes. So I hope you'll check that out. And I hope you'll check out policyviz.com where you can learn more about visualizing and communicating your data. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A whole team helps bring you the Policy Viz Podcast. Intro and outro music is provided by the NRIs, a band based here in Northern Virginia. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs. Design and promotion is created with assistance from Sharon Satsky Ramirez. And each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Policy of This podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. But if you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Winnow app, PayPal page, or Patreon page, all linked and available at policyviz.com.